Welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 145, In All Haste Possible. Last episode, I mentioned that we were likely not going to be following the War of the Roses on a blow-by-blow basis. This week will be a more granular one. However, due to how important St. Albans and its aftermath is for the kingdom and Wales in particular, I expect this will likely be one of those few one-off episodes with this amount of examination, especially when so many of the nobility are intertwined with the marcher lords and with ancestry of in Wales of some sort. For example, both in the Duke of York and in the King's family, there are linkages to Wales which will continue to grow stronger as time goes on. And as we go from being Richard of York versus Henry the Sixth and move on to Edward the Fourth and Henry the Seventh, those linkages will become even stronger and certainly become even more important to the story. Duke Richard of York was now firmly in charge of the Kingdom of England. The Protector used his governorship to try and rule fairly and evenly, much to the surprise of many, and as surprising as it might seem, York tried to treat between the rival Neville's and Percy's fairly to get them to finally stop their feud. He imprisoned one of the biggest problems on the Neville's side, his own son-in-law, Henry Holland, the Duke of Exeter, as an example. In giving out lands, he gave as much out to the Queen's favorites as he did for his own loyalists. Edmund and Jasper Tudor, for example, would have received lands and titles along with so many others, and for the most part, York at least appeared to be trying to be conciliatory. Unless you were Edmund Beaufort, the Duke of Somerset. York left him imprisoned and did not make any offers of peace or reconciliation to him a sign that Somerset and York were not going to ever patch things up, and that rivalry could only end in death. On Christmas Day, 1454, King Henry VI came back to himself for the first time in over a year. As historian Robin Story was quoted as saying, If Henry's insanity was a tragedy, his recovery was a national disaster. The return of his faculties created issues for York. Ruling for all of a year, he was now in a bind. The king immediately called for his favorites, Somerset, to be released from the Tower of London. With his return to active management, York was now in serious trouble. The favorites of the king were now back in control, and Somerset was looking for revenge. Richard and his allies, which at the time were still a large percentage of the nobility, did not give up or turn over power to their enemies, but rather retreated before things could get worse, so that they could plan and re-engage. The Duke knew that he would likely be executed if he appeared before the court again. The King had commanded York to keep the peace, likely hoping the two factions would avoid open warfare, but it was honestly far too late for that idea. Instead, York prepared to take his first move, one that would see the opening salvo in the sporadic War of the Roses commence. York and Neville were not idle during Somerset's rise back to power over the spring of 1455. They had recruited men from the north, loyal to the Nevilles in York. 
They went to Wales, likely their lands in the marches, gaining recruits as they went. With his court reconvened at Westminster by April 1455, Henry and his loyalist court decided to hold another great council, this time in Leicester. Their demands were simple. York, Salisbury, and Warwick were to disband their armies and present themselves before the king with no more, in the case of Warwick and Salisbury, of 160 men each, and for York, 200 men, little more than an effective honor guard against a real army. Richard and the Earl of Warwick felt this council would question their loyalty and likely mean their imprisonment at best. With their gathered forces, they instead marched to stop Henry from reaching Leicester. They were less than a day's ride from St. Albans about the time a letter from the king had arrived. We cannot know if this gave them pause before they cast their die or if it was just a final note in what was obviously coming. In the meantime, they responded to this summons with a letter of their own. They sent it to the Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Bouchier, and the followers of York wanted to at least appear pious defenders of the king, not traitors, so their initial response carried this concept forward. They were not enemies to the king, just to his evil advisers. As said in the letter, We intend not with God's grace to proceed to any matter or thing other than God's mercy shall be to his pleasure, the honor, prosperity, and weal of our said sovereign Lord. In other words, we're just here to protect you, king. Which sounds like a reasonable recognition of the king until you get to the bit of a different tone later in the letter. The Yorkists promised they would do, accordeth with our duty, to that which may be surety of his most noble person, wherein we will neither spare bodies nor goods. In other words, Somerset, we're coming. We are prepared to fight to the last man to bring an end to your council. The Yorkists were hoping to avoid this great council, to thwart the machinations of Somerset, and hopefully decide the matter once and for all. York likely felt he needed to finish off Somerset, who was he considered to be a bad influence on Henry, if not in actuality, then certainly in his influence in trying to get York arrested. In mid-May 1455, King Henry VI called on the men of England to band together to send, in quotes, whosoever they may be in all haste possible. The assembly point would be St. Albans, a small community north of London, with the idea was to gather there and then head to Leicester with a large army to enforce the king's command. The king's forces reached St. Albans, setting up camp just south of town on May 22nd, after a brief stop in Watford the day before. He had with him around 2,000 men, and while not a tiny army at the time, was certainly not enough to deal with what York had coming for him. York's forces arrived later in the day, and I've seen various numbers quoted, but most historians, at least at this point in time, agree that it was probably around 3,000 men, which would still be enough to handle the king. Worse yet for the king, these men were very experienced fighters who had fought in wars both in France and with Scotland and thus had the experience 
and the training enabled to carry forward York's orders. To show just how divided the Civil War had become, both sides had Nevilles. William Neville, the brother of the Earl of uh, Warwick, was on the side of the king, accompanying, well, or should I say on the side of Somerset. Accompanying the king north was the rival of the, ne the Nevilles, Henry Percy, the leader of the clan of Percy's, the patriarch of the family, if you will, as well, the Duke of Buckingham, and there were other key players, including the king's stepbrother, Jasper Tudor, who, while not a military man, had accompanied the king, likely as he is one of the few that was seen as an honest broker on both sides. On May 22nd, York's army also reached the outskirts of St. Albans, but more importantly, they arrived first. The king and his retinue reached the edge of town around 9 a.m. and immediately began to try and set up defensive points. However, as doing that, negotiations began almost immediately. The king's forces, likely hoping to stave off a coming confrontation, relieved Somerset of the title of Constable of England, which was effectively the commander of the English military, which was then given to Humphrey, Duke of Buckingham. Historian Dan Jones speculated that as Buckingham was seen in better light by the Yorkist, it would be possible that they might negotiate with him where they wouldn't with Somerset. The townspeople in St. Albans knew that the town would also be the center point for this coming battle, and likely as worried for their own lives and property as much as who, which side would win, and specifically in defending the king, they then began to man the walls to defend themselves. And by walls, I don't mean walls. They were actually simply creating barriers and barricades around the town because the town was unwalled. It didn't have any sort of normal defenses. Most of England at this time hadn't really seen warfare in hundreds of years. And so there wasn't this sense of need for uh, protected town sites or walled cities the way there would be in most of Europe at this point, and even in Wales, if we want to be honest. So in that way, this is an odd situation that they're in and having to fight against experienced soldiers with little more than stacks of equipment and carts and other things to try and put barriers up and and try and create some sort of protection for themselves. It's important to remember at this stage also that for most of the next 15 years, Henry VI, King of England, was a bystander to most of what was going on. Somerset commanded the court with the will of the Queen at this stage, and he and Buckingham were the figures leading the Lancastrian cause at this point. One of York's major points against them was that the king did not even see the correspondence that was sent and took no part in ruling the kingdom since his recovery. Again, the idea was that this was not a rebellion, not against the king, but about putting right who should be in charge. At least that was the propaganda the Yorkists put forward. As offers and counteroffers passed between both sides, one thing remained. 
one thing that Richard would not give in on, would not change his mind on, and that was that Somerset had to be handed over to the Yorks. He would face punishment and imprisonment, and that was one of those conditions that was just never going to change. If you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggies. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II, and people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts. Somerset was obviously not going to bend to that, and the lack of progress led York to become frustrated, and Buckingham's hopes to delay proceedings at least until the 23rd or the next day likely angered him. Somerset and Buckingham had bishops that were coming, and I think there was a hope that with the churchmen in the town, it might allay some of the desires for violence and possibly act as conditions for coming up with a peaceful solution. However, at 10 a.m., according to historian Dan Jones, some of Warwick's men, growing tired of waiting around, assaulted the fortified barricades which surrounded St. Albans. York's men, who were more experienced having come from the wars in France and the small abbey town that they were attacking, were barely much of a hindrance. 
Make no mistake, though, the townsmen did their best to protect their property and their town, but it was to no avail against these battle-worn men. The Battle of St. Albans was always more like a skirmish, if everyone is honest. The battle was shockingly brief, as it only took an hour to effectively decide the matter and two hours to end fighting. Defenses held at some points and collapsed speedily at others against the fire of Warwick's archers. It then boiled down to hand-to-hand, sword-to-sword violence at street level. The undoing of the royal forces appeared pretty quickly, as it was apparent that Buckingham and Somerset thought that negotiations would go on longer, and if not, that their defensive line would be adequate enough to deal with York's press. Because of this, their forces were unprepared, some not even fully armored, including the king, and they were falling under the pressure that was coming from York's men. King Henry was said to have stood appalled at what was happening. He was unprepared for the violence and had never led a man in battle in his life. He was now 33 years old. At one point, an arrow grazed his neck, drawing blood. The king was outraged and shouting that anyone would even consider shooting their king. The grandson of Henry IV, son of Henry V, was shouting about people shooting at him, complaining that he was shot, which seems so absurd by comparisons to his forefathers. Medieval kings, of course, were generally leaders in battle. If not, they were generally viewed very poorly by writers and their subjects. Henry's complete lack of combat experience and obvious fear of battle would have sapped the morale of his forces. The reason I think this is to be the case is that the royal colors were abandoned at this point, something which, since the days of Rome, was seen as sacrosanct on the battlefield. You defend your colors with your life, and especially the royal ones. Their loss would have boosted the triumphant Yorkists and shown that the king had no chance. Henry was taken from the field almost immediately after his injury and hidden in a tannery, which again is a place known for a lot of things, but a building for royal dignity? This was not one of those. And in that stinky, gross location something far beyond the royal dignity, the Yorkist men found the king. And fairly quickly, they bundled him off to the abbey on their side of the line. A key component of their political contention was that the king needed protection, so they had no interest in doing him harm, which in a way is remarkable, but since it would leave the kingdom in the hands of another child king and a domineering mother, It may have been seen not only as good policy, but the wisest move for York, to be seen as the protector of the crown rather than an opponent. By noon, the battle was fully ended. Only 60 people had been killed, but among them were some very large figures on the Lancastrian side. Dead on the field was Lord Thomas Clifford, who had managed the initial defense and was seen by all, as being very brave in that defense. Henry Percy, the Earl of Northumberland, the patriarch of the Percys and the haranguer of the Nevilles, and finally, and most significantly, Edmund Beaufort, the Duke of Somerset. 
Somerset and his son, Henry, were said to have been pinned down in a tavern by Yorkus, and Henry had been almost beaten to death. Escaping by some miracle on the back of a cart, he was able to escape town near death. The Yorkist rage and bloodlust peaked. They then took the duke and hacked him to death in the streets of St. Albans. With Somerset dead, York took the king with Salisbury and Warwick and had him sign his protection into their hands. The opening salvo of the War of the Roses led to a complete victory for Richard of York. The Lord Protector was back, and now it was a question, could he hold on better to power with his greatest rival dead in the streets of St. Albans? Jasper Tudor, a man with no military background at this point, had survived the mess that surrounded him. Like many, he would have seen the hail of arrows, the sting of swords, as armed troops, bloodied and raging, stormed the town. The abbot of St. Albans described the scene. Here you saw a man with his brains dashed out. Here was one with a broken arm, another with his throat cut, and a fourth with a pierced chest. What Jasper thought or did during this battle we don't have any information on. I would guess that he likely fled with most of the royalists, as they did as the fighting grew more and more intense. After the battle, the stepbrothers likely were becoming much more prominent members of the king's loyalists. And crucially, ones that did not fall into a position of being seen as enemies of the Yorkist cause. So where negotiations began about what England would be under the new parliament and protector, Edmund and Jasper were able to keep their lands and titles that they had been granted by the king, while many others were forfeited. The Tudors were some of the few who had been rewarded under the last protectorship, so in a way it's not a shock that they were protected here. Jasper also became important in negotiating with York to try and find ways to bridge the gap before things totally went astray. The Tudor brothers had been sympathetic to York's calls for a smaller, more frugal, and more aware government. They had also felt that Queen Margaret was not the person to lead the Loyalist cause. By November of 1455, York had been named Lord Protector by the Parliament, once more watching over the kingdom, while the king, under the stress of St. Albans, had once again succumbed to yet another mental break. York, through the king, sent Edmund Tudor to Wales to act as the king's official representative to quell Welsh opinions and to eliminate some of those who had been causing trouble. Meanwhile, the Herberts and Vaughns had greatly been advantaged by their support of the Yorkists, and now already reasonably strong lords in South Wales were now given larger controls in those marcher lordships. They would become the Yorkist counterweight to the rise of Tudor power at a time when the entire kingdom was on a knife edge as both loyalists and the Yorkists continued to prepare for the next phase in the War of the Roses. I thank you all for listening. I hope if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com. If you want, you can follow us at Welsh History Pod on Twitter or join us on Facebook 
at facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast. If you would like to support the podcast financially, you may do so at patreon.com forward slash Welsh History. It is not expected, but definitely appreciated. And I thank you all for listening, and I hope you have a great and healthy day. We'll talk to you later. Take care. Bye. This has been a Distractions Media production. For more information, you can check out everything we do at distractionsmedia.com. History is the greatest adventure story. But does it ever leave you wondering what the women were doing all that time? This is Lori from the Her Half of History podcast, and the answer is that some women were seizing power, or escaping slavery, or spying for their country, or creating artistic masterpieces, while countless others were doing the laundry, getting married, and wondering why their clothes don't have more pockets. If you would like to hear the stories of women doing all of those things, check out Her Half of History at herhalfofhistory.com or wherever you get your podcasts.